Hi, welcome to A Virtual View. Today, I'm joined by Bernard Bernassa, the Senior Director of Virtual Care Solutions at CareSimple, which is a provider of remote patient monitoring and virtual care solutions. And you also have the distinction of being a veteran here on A Virtual View. So thanks for coming back. Yeah, thanks, Danielle. It's great to be back. You know, I I love the fact you asked me to come back and talk about all things RPM. It's a subject that I'm so excited and passionate about, and uh, there's so many new developments and areas to uh, to talk about. Yeah, for sure. It's one of my favorite aspects of telehealth. I love sort of technology and remote patient monitoring in particular is an interest of mine on a personal level. So always happy to chat with you, somebody who knows quite a bit. So for our guests who maybe don't know you as well as I do, could you give me a brief introduction of yourself? So I'm a senior director of virtual care solutions at CareSimple, and we're a fast-growing provider of uh, remote patient monitoring and virtual care solutions. And we've been around for probably the better part of 12 or 13 years in a variety of different solution areas, but now completely focused on remote patient monitoring and related solutions. I've had a long history in the digital healthcare space, starting with video integration and communication control systems for operating rooms. And then I transitioned into facility-based telemedicine solutions, mobile telemedicine, post-acute care solutions, and then finally into uh, patient care at home space. So I've seen that whole uh, ecosystem from the internal operatings of a hospital system all the way out to a patient's home. Yeah, quite knowledgeable. I got a lot of experience in different aspects, which I think is really cool. So it's been about a year since we've chatted together, right? Yeah, I can't believe it. But yes, it has. That year has (laughs) flown by. It's gone quick, for sure. So could you tell me a little bit about some of the changes that have occurred in the remote patient monitoring world since we last talked? Yeah, so there's been a lot of changes and just a lot of evolution and and hurdles. I think the biggest change that the industry has gone through is really just a huge learning curve in how to manage new care delivery models for patients at home. Let's see, a year ago, we were just pulling out of the COVID spiral and we're trying to catch our breath, resetting directional compasses, figuring out which way was forward. And we're, I think a lot of the health systems are still early in the learning journey. And there's some positive examples, but also some hard lessons that were learned along the way. I kind of liken the experience of health providers using virtual care to address the COVID surge, kind of to jumping out of a plane and landing in <laughs> ice cold waters. <laughs> it was, a, I think it was a rude awakening for staff, but it did serve at least the critical purpose of stemming that flow of in-person visits you know, kind of mitigate the spread of the virus. So uh, it served its purpose, right? But I think uh, the health systems, they really had no choice but to react quickly and and kind of throw together that defensive solution. They didn't have the luxury of crafting a a well-thought-out plan and a strategy. And then if you add to this the, the waves of funding that were just channeled into the system, to help that COVID response. It was kind of like a frenzied shopping spree. With yeah, a lot lots of money. of money, no plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got it. You got it. That's sort it's of me a, at the uh, mall. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. And that's sort of a recipe, I think, for troubles. And it was sort of a trial by fire, I think, right. uh, in the RPM effectiveness world. Kind of fast forward to now, I think many of the health systems we're talking to anyway, are uh, they're kind of hitting the reset button and they're doing a complete review of their existing solution and their programs. They're taking the time to learn from those lessons learned to create mm-hmm. a more carefully thought out plan for both their technology selection and then their operational model. 
So that's what we're seeing quite a bit. I think all that being said, though, I don't want to it kind of paint the negative picture because there's still many, many examples of successful RPM programs and outcomes mm-hmm. where the, the strategy was more carefully set, maybe not as much as a response to COVID, but to really define program objectives for specific target populations with high chronic care needs and, and being selective and, and very purposeful in that area. Yeah, but I think we've seen a similar trend to what you describe all through like the healthcare landscape, but particularly in the health technology and telehealth space, because that was something where there was just such rapid expansion, there wasn't room to plan or really be strategic about it. And so now we're taking a step back, we're looking at, okay, what worked here, and what maybe didn't work so well? So what should we preserve? And then what should we maybe go back to doing things mostly in person or taking a step back from how we were using this technology? And as you described it, like our flood of money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I kind of like to think of not that I want to think of uh, COVID as as a party in any way, shape or form, but I kind of (laughs) feel like I feel like we're in a bit of a hangover phase here. But I think we're recovering pretty well. Yeah, I would say that is a hundred percent accurate. Like we saw utilization like we'd never seen before in the telehealth space. And now we're just sort of taking a step back and asking ourselves, okay, what do we do now? Like, where's our next step? (laughs) Yeah. And I think even some of those lofty numbers that were reached justifiably so, given the shutdown of physician offices and all that, but that's also waned. Utilization, uh, we've fallen back a little bit. So it's kind of tracks with some of the re-engineering and rethinking of how, how we should stand these programs up. Oh, for sure. And even as somebody who, like me, is a telehealth advocate, I can confidently say it's not the best care modality for every single condition out there. Like, you can't use remote patient monitoring to effectively treat, like, a cold or a broken arm, you know? <laughs> that's right. That's right. At least not not yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We'll be doing, uh, you know, transplants uh, virtually with robots, you know. Yeah, I could do that at home. <laughs> there you go. Just got to look it up on YouTube. You know, you can figure out anything. All right. So let's let's talk a little bit about the lessons learned, because I know you talked about these briefly, but what do you think were our most important lessons learned during COVID? I think a common theme underlying the lessons learned that we're hearing anyway is that kind of the initial technology and programs were not scalable or sustainable, whether it's they were never designed to be that way or they just may not have been implemented in such a way. But we're finding that like across the board from a staffing, a financial and an adoption basis by not just patients, but physicians as well, trying to get them on board to uh, to get buy in. Mm hmm. But I think one of the biggest lessons was in realizing how painful it is to run a virtual care program that's not well integrated into the care workflows and the EHR. Nursing staff, it's already overworked, was having kind of to duplicate a lot of efforts, both in the RPM platform and in the HR. They're manually entering both the patients when you're enrolling them, but they're also copying and pasting the readings coming into the RPM system and then into the HR. Then they're trying to reconcile things like care coordination and response kind of between the systems. I think this has contributed to the experience of poor patient care, stress on the staff, really low program effectiveness, and just causing a drain on the support and the uh, endorsement of the programs going forward. So they get challenged internally a lot. But what we're now finding in, in, in a very increasing occurrence is that 
EHR experts from the IT department are now being brought in really early to guide this whole process to make sure that when you get to the, the go live, that everything is completely tested and ensured that it can integrate uh, in, in the best ways possible. And that can delay some of the decision time and the approval time for programs, but it is just becoming such a vital piece. Another painful lesson was kind of on the uh, the operational side, managing the logistics and the support process around what can amount to complicated technology and hardware kits to the patient homes. You know, often these kits had to include a communication device like a tablet, and that had to be connected via Bluetooth, pairing to some of the devices. Patients, and especially elderly ones and the tech challenge ones, they face difficulties trying to set up the gear and learning how to use it, and it just required constant support. And then when the patient wasn't on the program anymore, the model was where the kits had to be repurposed for the next patient because they were kind of costly, and, and they had to be retrieved, and that just created a logistical nightmare. We had you know low patient return rates, lost components, costly reprocessing fees, and, and even turnaround times that were excessive while the in the vendor's logistics center. I think what we're now starting to see is a shift towards simpler devices, less complicated technology, direct cellular devices that don't require a lot of the headaches of the old kits. Mm -hmm. And it's really, I think, helped to ease the burden on the patients and the care team. So that just drives greater adoption and scalability in itself. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that because I feel like a lot of folks who are utilizing RPM, particularly to manage chronic conditions maybe are folks that don't have the same level of digital literacy, not to generalize, but aging adults, people like that who aren't necessarily as comfortable with utilizing technology. So enabling them to have like the simplest experience possible, uh, I think that's a really admirable way to look at how we're utilizing this this RPM and other health, te- health technology at this point. Yeah, you know, I often think of my dad, you know, and he uh, <laughs> he, he, he kind of lives lives by himself right now in, in the house we grew up in, but uh, mom, mom passed a bit ago, but he doesn't keep his cell phone on. He feels like he has to turn it <laughs> off and you try, <laughs> you try to reach him and he just doesn't know how to, he, he doesn't text, right? And it's, right. Uh, I mean, he has a landline, but even that sometimes is hit or miss, but yeah, he just, <laughs> he thinks he has to turn this off and it's not an always on device. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, so I think of him a lot when I think of other patients we try to help with this technology. Yeah, I think of an older family member I have who refers to going to the doctor on the computer and it's like it's a newfangled technology <laughs> and I, I love that phrasing it's so good <laughs> just the use of the, of the words there you know it's, it's yeah it's, it's interesting going to the doctor on my computer <laughs> but to touch on something you mentioned earlier that I thought was really interesting too interoperability and how vital that is to ensuring that we can integrate technology into our current health systems because I do feel like as we're developing these things, a lot of times we get blinded by the exciting technology and we don't consider interoperability as something that's as important as it is to be used as part of like a workflow and to not really disrupt operations. So I I like that that's something that you brought up as a a lesson that had been learned. Yeah. You know, the more you, you talk with the, both the clinical experts in a health system, as well as the EHR users, you understand that, that they live in a 
a very different world that's hard to fully understand up front. So you learn as you go and you realize that, oh, that's why it's so important to do a certain particular activity a certain way and why our system might need to change a bit to be able to accommodate that because that's how you live and breathe every day in that mm-hmm. EHR. We need, as a vendor, we need to be able to be have very nimble and flexible and easily to adjust data handling or or drop rating and and just workflow improvements to streamline and augment the efficiency that is achievable in the HR. So yeah, we work hard to do that. Yeah, because it can be a bit of a pain on the development end, but I'm sure when it's being like utilized, that's something that end users are very grateful for, that they don't have to work in like 12 different systems. Because I know back when we were in the early stages of COVID and before that, it was kind of the Wild West out there with how things work together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's, a, there's so many things that are managed through the EHR. And I think ourselves included, but other vendors as well, I think, don't understand, I think, the, and, and almost we're, like we try to duplicate or recreate what really is already and should be done in the EHR. So backing off of that and really just kind of being this, this arm or extension or branch off of the EHR as an extension of it, I think is just the right way to think about it. I do understand the desire to simplify But at the same time, you can't work without considering the technology and systems that are already in place. Absolutely. Of which these health systems have spent tens of millions of dollars on, probably annually. We can't just say stop using that and use my uh, spreadsheet or whatever. That's not how that works. But my dashboard's shiny and pretty and, you know, the coolest thing you've ever seen, right? (laughs) (laughs) It might be, but you're not going to make a whole health system switch to it. That's not the way that works. There you go. Uh It's a shame, but it's true. So uh, we've talked about like our lessons learned and stuff. And now that we're into our new sort of phase of utilizing telehealth, RPM, health technology, let's talk a little bit about sustainability and how you make sure that a program is sustainable. Because as we come off COVID, we're no longer being buried in that like tsunami of money anymore. So we have to take into consideration how things are going to operate from a financial perspective, from a staffing perspective. So let's talk a little bit about sustainability planning and how we can do that. Certainly we could talk about sustainability. I think that's such an important topic. Kind of what what we have to keep in mind and what we're seeing is that there's no one size fits all ROI or business case that's that has the same set of like financial motivators or outcomes, you know, across the industry, right? Uh, Some health systems view cost savings as paramount. Others focus on revenue offsets from reimbursement. And still others might view RPM as as key to adding adding like service line growth, uh, new revenues, uh, patient retention, or even growing their patient base. In some cases, even we'll talk to health systems about cost savings almost as our standard approach, right? And then we learn that they, they want to avoid highlighting reductions in utilization like hospital readmissions because those could be viewed by the hospital administration or they have this culture of viewing them as having a negative revenue impact, right? They don't necessarily want to. So it's, you know, it's almost like talking out of two sides of the mouth, but they just want to avoid at least the highlighting of that sometimes. So we say, okay, well, you know, let's kind of, you know, keep that as a potentially it's good for the health system, but not necessarily something you want to promote. So we have to be careful with that sometimes. Right. But, you know, there is lots of evidence, both factual via studies that have been produced, but also anecdotally via provider and vendor claims 
that RPMs have a really big impact on reducing avoidable hospitalizations and lowering readmission rates and including uh, visits to the ER. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's often hard to kind of gauge or ascertain is exactly how much these avoidances or these you know, utilization reductions are actually saving the health system. That's Sometimes it's hard to, to define that. So that can make that ROI picture a little bit hard to fully appreciate, no matter how well it's constructed, even, let's say, by the vendor community. Right. Yeah. One of the, um, as an example, one of the leading health, we've learned this recently from one of the leading health systems that are operating a, a very large-scale, multi-state virtual care model. But they, they've uh, estimated that they've seen an average reduction in claims submissions of about $180 per patient per month for the enrolled members in their RPM solution. And then what they've said is uh, using that estimate, use, or using an estimate that their actual cost of care is about 60% of the mm-hmm. claim submissions, right? That, that they're experiencing a direct savings in the cost of care of about $110 per patient per month on RPM, or about $1,300 per patient per year. So um, this is very well documented, and it's kind of one of the first times we've seen some of that transparency into, okay, well, there's some you know, savings in the claims we're submitting, but also how does it translate based on what's our actual direct cost of care, right? Right. So we thought that that was kind of an interesting metric that's also being used by another health system we're talking to. They're actually referring to that information there that's being shared among, you know, peer organizations. That's interesting. Yeah. And then uh, I think from a reimbursement perspective, since I think you asked about that as well, is the good news is RPM is getting broadly embraced by payers Mm -hmm. of all types. I think in addition to the CMS reimbursement that we all kind of know pretty well on a nationwide basis for Medicare, we're now up to 37 states that have approved RPM as a covered service for their yeah, Medicaid it's been, programs. It's been increasing, which is great to see. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great to see those get added. And and, and most of those states have uh, legislation that require the private payers to cover for the same services. And uh, so most of them have that. And about half of those 37 also have a payment parity law in place, which requires... Yep private payers to reimburse the same rate as an in-office visit, yep. right? So that's all the bright side there, I think. And then most of your large commercial payers even have RPM coverage policies in place, even in states where, you know, RPM may not be defined in legislation. So that's good news too. Yeah, for sure. But I think the, the reimbursement process is, isn't without its challenges, right? So even though Medicare <laughs> <For sure. laughs> is, yeah, like we hear, we hear news stories every day and, and it's, and it's, it's actually cool to hear them because we learn so much from just hearing, you know, what has been the outcome? You always talk about, oh, you can bill for this, but then we, we'd like to see on, on the other side, what actually got reimbursed, right? Yeah. It's like, can we actually bill for this? <laughs> yeah. 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 So talk to me when I get the check, you know? Right. But um, Yeah. I think there's, based on, I think there's a myriad of restrictions on the private payer side and there's little consistency across states. And that matter of fact, uh, recently we'd seen a, a private payer deny coverage in a state that requires coverage because the insured member uh, residing in that state is a member of a plan based in another state. So, so it's like, okay, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you screen for that in your patient uh, coverage or your, uh, you know, prior authorization, you know? So it's just, anyway, it can be, it can be a maze out there. So, um, yeah. And then I think another factor in sustainability that kind of doesn't get much airtime and that I think needs to be uh, considered quite a bit is copay requirements that patients have to pay. Right. Yeah. That can be a, a real surprise and you have to plan for that. I think it, 
patients understand that, hey, I've got a copay when I go see a doctor in the office, right? Or if I'm getting a prescription. But I think it's an entirely different concept when they realize they've got to have multiple copays per month for the various billing codes that are being submitted on their behalf as part of an RPM program. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you have providers billing about 100 to 150 a month for a single patient, then that's a monthly patient financial responsibility of 20 to $30 uh, for the duration of the RPM program membership. I mean, that's like, I don't know, with the price of streaming services these days, that's the equivalent of, you know, having to cancel one streaming service to pay for this. (laughs) That's a whole Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. On the premium side, right? But I think that these copay responsibilities, they're they're really an inhibitor to patient acceptance and, you know, the duration of how long they stay on the program and really ultimately to sustainability, right? I think we're also seeing, though, as we dig into these with providers and and, uh, the billing groups, is there's some relief that is going on from this burden. Some patients have supplemental insurance that covers that copayment, maybe Medicare Advantage or something like that, or or the provider may even just choose to absorb it as part of the uh, not chase them down for it quite as much. Of course, then it does have an impact on provider profitability because they're still getting the amount less to copay from the, uh, you know, from CMS, for instance. Right. But one another bright spot, though, on the uh, on the reimbursement side, though, is and you probably heard, I'm sure, is that uh, especially for community health centers and FQHCs, CMS has just approved finally in their final rule for the 2024 physician fee schedule, the inclusion of the eligibility of FQHCs and community health centers to get reimbursed for RPM starting. Yeah, we were. We were pretty excited about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm still singing and dancing about that. I love uh, yeah. <laughs> working with community health centers and FQHCs. This is like music to my ears. And, uh, you know, they'd previously been ineligible for uh, reimbursement under the prospective payment system in place by CMS. But now they can use that general services code, GO511, that was usable for some virtual care services in a very limited way in 2023, but now can actually crosswalk over to the RPM codes and they can now get reimbursed like any other provider in any other health system or practice organization for uh, RPM charges. Which is so good to see. And I do like that you mentioned, like, it is hard for patients sometimes to understand why an RPM device is so important. And I think that's something that we can get into with preventative care why sometimes it's hard for folks to understand why it's important to stay up to date and current on their like remote patient monitoring on their preventative medications, because they don't immediately see a problem if they stop doing it. Because like, if I have a broken bone or a splinter or something, obviously that hurts. I want to fix it. But if I have high blood pressure and I don't necessarily manage that with remote patient monitoring, that's not going to negatively impact me right away, you know? No, you're so you're so true there, right? And that's why it's hard sometimes to uh, to get that compliance up, right. right? Where you need it, you know, both from a program financial uh, uh, capabilities, but also uh, just from you know outcomes, right? To drive outcomes, because you're right, patients don't see the negative impact of not managing, you know, their their hypertension and that. But uh, I think the more that can be done to link upstream and downstream relationships between 
you know, your current state and what either your, you know, improvement could be, or maybe where, where you could go in a negative way if you don't, don't, if you aren't compliant. And, and I think it's really cool sometimes to talk to some kidney care specialist organizations, for instance, that are looking at, you know, advanced stages of chronic kidney disease and potentially heading on a course of a transplant if the disease progresses far enough. And, and, and to hear them talk about things like, hey, yeah, we're trying to manage those patients and prevent them from, you know, getting to end-stage renal disease or to, you know, need a transplant, uh, we're, we really want to start looking upstream and start to, to look for maybe diabetic patients, right? And how can we help them improve their blood sugars so that they don't end up progressing to something like a uh, needing, uh, you know, specialized kidney or advanced kidney disease care. So it's really cool to see the relationships. And I think the more patients can understand those relationships, the more they would take a bigger role in, uh, in managing their care remotely with these automated systems. Yeah, and I think that's why health literacy is so important. And you go back to what we talked about earlier about making things simpler, more understandable, and I think that all feeds into people understanding their health and why things like preventative care are so important. Absolutely, yeah. So I would be remiss in not bringing up the hot-and-button topic of all of the (laughs) sort of telehealth, health technology world right now. Have you considered at all how AI or machine learning technology at all might play into the work that you do? Yeah, boy, that's a kind of a topic du jour, right? Across many industries. It really is. (laughs) Right. And you hear about it so much in in the news, especially in the financial world, right? About seeing companies that are making big bets and investments on AIs and anointed as the next big, you know, disruptive company, you know, because they say AI (laughs) 80 times in their quarterly financial <laughs> reports. <laughs> right. So, you know, but I think AI, it, it applies a little differently in healthcare, and I think it has to. And I think the folks we've kind of talked to about it is there's sort of a cautious optimism around AI if it's used right. But it, the broad view, I think, with physicians, I think, is that it's not yet ready and it's not yet trustable to make decisions related to patient care, you know, medications or other type of procedural um recommendations. But I think there's still several ways uh, from a technology vendor perspective like ourselves that, <laughs> that, we, that, we, that we're looking at AI and that uh, AI can help. Where we really see AI helping and where we're trying to invest in it is in how it can help the care management team and the nurses be more productive and maybe cut out some of the steps, but also augment some of the possible responses, right? As far as being, you know, having automated selection of responses, whether they're conditionally connected or whether they're, you know, drop down, you know, pre-scripted responses based on a certain pattern, whether it's a combination of uh, readings that are coming in over uh, a pattern or maybe missed readings or responses to questionnaires that are being presented so that you're getting a more inclusive picture of what's going on with the patient that can support the readings that are coming in and making some educated guesses around the right, because we detect patterns, the right you know, next steps or approaches to care, actions to be taken. So we're seeing that as a way of kind of enhancing productivity for the nursing team and how, that, and how AI can help in that area. Yeah, I've always been of the opinion that it's going to be most useful taking away certain administrative tasks Mm -hmm. so that care providers can focus on what they do best, which is providing care to patients. So, Exactly. You got it. Anything you can do to offload the care management piece so they can actually do, you know, the interventional care work. I think that that's that's key. 
Right, right. So before we go today, let's talk about the outlook for RPM in 2024 and beyond. What do you think are some of those key areas providers need to address and be aware of to sort of succeed in realizing the benefits that RPM can have? Yeah, yeah. Great question here as uh, we race towards the end of 2023. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I really think, obviously, because of lessons learned, but I think that uh, 2024 is going to be a breakout year for RPM. That's that's my prediction. And you can have me back in a year and we'll see how that played out. (laughs) (laughs) We're always happy to chat with you. (laughs) There you go. I think it'll be the year when we see larger scaling to thousands of patients in the larger health systems as opposed to just hundreds. And I think we'll see improved realization of the defined outcomes that are set up for the programs as well as the financial performance. Because I think that a lot of your health systems, they've kind of evolved from those early kind of rushed deployments from RPM in response to COVID and and those types of things. And they've also learned from doing a lot of limited scale pilot programs. I think we're ready to evolve from pilots. I think we've learned quite a bit. I think we've learned what, and they've learned what works and doesn't work, Uh, you know, kind of how to choose the the best partner with a solution that can scale, both Mm -hmm. with their workflows, their EHR, and, you know, how they can also prioritize patient mix and the care condition focus to strengthen the program success, especially in the earlier stages. And then it builds appeal for expansion to other populations and other disease groups. I think the biggest challenge, though, and, and the one that I think we're going to hopefully break through in 2024 is uh, in the area of staffing to support the programs. That's just the biggest headwind we see right now. We all know that there's a shortage of nursing and physician resources in the industry, and the, and the labor costs are going through the roof. And there's a shortage of all providers, everyone yes, in this field. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, all of the, the clinician types, yeah. I think the ones that are in the positions right now, of course, are overworked as well, right? So, Oh, of course. Yeah, aside from finding a solution or, or providing a solution that's easy to use and, and it maximizes productivity you know, for those resources, I think health systems need to think of creative ways to leverage third-party program support services from RPM vendors or just other clinician service organizations. I think they can choose either, you know, a lot of them don't want to kind of hand over the patient relationship in a big way, but they can choose to outsource, you know, a bulk of the RPM activities, though, that may be, you know, a little less high touch, such as, you know, enrolling the patients, onboarding, doing the billing and that kind of thing, but maybe leaving the actual monitoring and care management up to their provider. Or, of course, they could outsource the whole thing. But I think that the health systems that, that strike the best balance between having a a fully integrated solution with their workflows, but also one that is attractive for patient adoption and that right staffing model. I think they're the ones that are going to experience the the best results from RPM programs and the best success. Yeah, I'd agree. I do think we need to start being creative about (laughs) how we utilize our physicians' time just because we have such a limited number of providers right now, unfortunately. I think as we start to see physicians adopt it and get over that hump of, oh my God, I don't want to have to respond to all these, uh, you know, data coming in and the messages and that we're setting up. And I think that the right program set up the right team that handles all that, anything from, you know, RNs down to MAs, right, to be able to handle the monitoring and the filtering and the the intervention with the patients and only escalate what needs to be escalated to the the physician provider. Yeah, because there's such a fear, maybe isn't the right word, but there's a lot of trepidation around data bloat, I'm sure. Like, and that's something we could have a conversation about all day, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) 
Thank you for coming on and being a repeat guest here on A Virtual View. We're always happy to chat with you about the latest and greatest in RPM. Well, thanks so much, Danielle, for having me and, and for UMTRC for doing these great Virtual View podcasts. The central region of the country is my favorite region. I've got a lot of activity there, so I always <laughs> love coming back and talking to you guys. Great. Yeah, thanks so much. listening to a virtual view. You can find more information about today's episode in the show notes below. If you would like to support our podcast, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Do you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss? If so, contact us at info at umtrc.org or through the form found in the show notes. Also, we'd like to give a special thanks to our editor, Tristan Yoder. Finally, a special thanks to the Health Resources and Service Administration, also known as HRSA. Our podcast series, A Virtual View, is sponsored in part by HRSA's Telehealth Resource Center program, which is under HRSA's Office of the Administrator and the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. The content and conclusions of this podcast are those of the UMTRC and should not be construed as the official policy of, or the position of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. Thanks for listening and have a great day.